Hey there, Shopamaniacs. You're listening to another episode of the Shop Talk Show, a podcast all about front end web design development. I'm Dave Rupin with me is Chris Coyer. Hey, Chris. Hey, how you doing, Dave? Episode 499 here. Pretty exciting. We have a special guest with us, longtime friend of the show, keeping us honest over here at Shop Talk Show, Melanie Sumner. Hey, Melanie, how you doing? Good. I'm glad to be here. In your skyscraper in Chicago? Is that coming at you live from? <laughs> That's true. Yes, I live in downtown Chicago on the top floor of a building, and it's really fun. Once in a while, we get we get photos from the view from Melanie's. It makes us all jealous. Chicago <laughs> being a very beautiful place and your place having a beautiful view. You can find Melanie online at melanie.codes. I'm looking at your GitHub profile, too, which somehow you have an A+. Plus. You've given you, you get an A plus on GitHub. You get grades on your, GitHub? Your stats. What? Melanie yeah, does. Yeah, I was you excited to see that. What? Yeah. Cool, <laughs> right? PRs, issues, contributions. I probably get a good, a C minus, oh, but man. I have no idea. I would love to. I want a grade. Okay, well, that's cool. That's <laughs> <laughs> So I say longtime friend of the show because literally for years, probably since the beginning, we get, uh, we had, you know, Melanie would, would write in, you know, back before we had a fancy community discord and all that with um, sometimes questions and sometimes just just comments and things on t- topics that, that came up on the show. But somehow, embarrassingly, I've never had her on the show until now. So we're going to change that. You have, um, I, I think of you as, I'm sure you're a much more complete person than this, but um, Ember Accessibility. Accessibility and enterprise. You're the three three E's, except for that accessibility starts with an A. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> but certainly have been heavily involved with Ember also for years and years and years. So tell me about that. Sure. Yeah. Um. So I'm a member of the core framework team and also the steering committee, which handles like the governance kind of work, mm-hmm. and that's pretty cool. Um. My role in the core team is about accessibility and how we can make Ember more accessible by default. So what you get out of the box enables you as a developer to ship an accessible app, Um, or at least we don't get in your way of building an accessible app. So you could still ship a terrible app if you want to, but... Uh, some of the defaults we've improved over the last couple of years, and that's been really exciting. I bet it is, because this is one of those things where it actually, it lines up. You know, sometimes you hear like really weirdly nonsensical things like, is Jamstack good at accessibility? You're like, those two things are unrelated. Yeah. <laughs> those, it matters. <laughs> is your markup good or whatever? And, yeah. and likewise, I'm sure you can write an Ember component with a div with a click handler on it, right? Like it's not going to prevent you from doing that. But a JavaScript framework does certainly have accessibility things in mind. Like if it's handling routing, then is it helping you with focus management and things like that? Is that what you mean? What uh, what other things get tied in there? Yeah. So I actually wrote in a library that handles accessible routing for Ember. Uh, and we've recently started the project to improve the router. Like we just got some things. Um, Ember just celebrated its 10th birthday. <laughs> Uh, and for a JavaScript framework, that's really old, right? So, or podcast, or podcast, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, for anything in tech, really. Um, and we're starting to do some improvements around how we handle query parameters and how we handle accessible routing. And we sort of just reached that critical mass where 
We mostly love our routing story, but there's definitely some areas where we can improve and make it better um, for the modern web, really. And that's really what it is. Um, a lot of times, Ember is kind of a testing ground for new ideas. And then they'll get adopted into JavaScript through TC39. And then we have to go in underneath and switch out some of the stuff internally in Ember to match what's been widely adopted. And we have to do all of this in a backwards compatibility way because banks use Ember. So we don't want to break, bake, uh, we don't want to break your banking experience. Right. Cause you, know? you shipped a version and somebody just clicked the upgrade button or whatever. And, and that's yeah, kind of like yeah. one big feature of Ember, right? Is like, it, works it's it's like yes <laughs> almost like jquery kind of rarely broke compat embers like we're just we're making sure it works right that's um yeah it's kind of weird to think that the rendering engine has been rewritten a few times over the years to make it faster and consumers of ember didn't have to do a single thing but take in the new version like it didn't change how you use Ember, it just changed how Ember worked for you. Yeah, that's awesome, right? That's the good way that a framework can change is if you're like, oh, I do nothing and get benefit and then just get to feel fuzzy about that, that's great. Yeah. But that's probably a little hard to pull off. You know, once in a while, a framework will say, well, we actually have a better way you should be doing this. I, thinking about routing specifically, I don't think there's any doubt that people are the salty about React routers change at one point. Went through a change that said, hey, this is better. This is a better way to handle it. But it's totally not compatible. And it was like a, whatever, version 3 to 4 or 4 to 5 or something like that of the famous React router, which is, you know, rightfully famous and that React really needed that and, and, you know, they needed to step in and provide that and did and did a good job. But man, just literally yesterday heard people just beefing about it, even though yeah. it was like years ago <laughs> at this point. And that's not something you hear really from the Ember community, probably on purpose, because it's like, well, you're not going to do that to people. That's like your namesake. You're not going to just roll out an, a routing change that's just going to absolutely destroy the past. Yeah, and we have a really strong RFC process. So if if somebody wants to propose a change, they can. They can do a request for consideration, and it really gives us the chance as a community to talk about the idea all the way through. What is the detailed design? How do we teach this? What effect will this have on users? Um, and we do deprecate some things, but very slowly. And we give you lots of deprecation warnings, uh, code mods if possible. So you just run a code mod and it changes the code that needs to change. Fancy. Yeah, pretty nice. Yeah, um, that's cool. And major versions in Ember don't release new features. They only remove deprecated features. Hmm, interesting. And yeah. So this is very non-standard, right, for the rest of, I think, the other JavaScript frameworks. Uh, but we think it gives a little bit more stability. Mm -hmm. If you're on the last LTS of the 3.0, we just recently had 4.0. And if you're on the last version of the 3.0 series, well, you have confidence that you can go to 4.0, and what you're going to get is... 
smaller, less JavaScript, Mm -hmm. basically, because we're going to remove a lot of this for you. uh, And that's the major version bump. And when we want to do something like uh, conceptual changes, um, we do what's called additions. And these are more of what you would call a a major version in in another library or framework where, but we want to walk you through like a holistic picture of what the shift is and what this means for you. And because Ember is fully featured, um, lots of stuff out of the box for you, we usually have to tell multiple parts of the story in in an addition, which is why we try to do that a little bit differently, I think. Okay, so just so I have that clear, if you're on 3.2.6 and you move to 3.2.7, there will be nothing new. It will only remove things. But if you move from 3.2.8 to 4.0, then you get new things? No, opposite. 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 So, so yeah, like features go under the major minor patch, right? They go Features go under minor. Point release, you get new stuff. And then... Majors are take stuff out. So version bump, you take stuff out. That makes, I think that does make sense, right? That you, it's dangerous to go from three to four because you might, something in your app that you used might be gone now. Yeah. And we have a tool, um, Ember CLI upgrade. Somebody in the community wrote it and it will walk you through upgrading you step by step. For new versions, it's pretty useful. And it looks at your code. So it's like, look, in your file, dave.js on line 32, you're using an API that's gone now. Is that the kind of vibe? It's more about incrementally updating your dependencies and running tests. Um, We have what's called Ember Try. So we'll run the code base against different versions that we call scenarios to make sure not only are you we can give you kind of like a overall status. So the last LTS version of Ember, uh, the current version of Ember, the beta version of Ember, we're developing a new build tool. So we'll test against that now and just kind of give you an overall picture of, hey, these are the things that are coming and you can start thinking about those now. Uh I work on some apps where I'll disable some of those scenarios just so CI will pass, but it gives me a backlog. Hey, I need to look into why that scenario is failing. Is it just some dependencies that need to be upgraded or is there something I need to think about differently and maybe refactor a little? Um, but you get tons of warning, which I think is really great for enterprise teams who have to do planning like a year in advance, <laughs> you know? Right. Is that, is LTS long-term support or is it something else? LTS is considered stable. Like we are fairly certain that if you use this, you shouldn't run into any major issues. We've ironed them out by the time it gets to LTS. And that's kind okay. of like every four miners, I think. That's the next LTS. Yeah. Cool. So that you use the enterprise word. So let's go there. What is your, I mean, where where does that come from in an example? Because I think that's a blind spot perhaps for Dave and I, although Dave, you work with enterprises where I don't. I just like don't think about what's different for people that work about in that world. So like, tell me about my blind spot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, maybe all the folks who have to work in enterprise are jealous 
that you get to have that blind spot. Um, you have to think about things at scale uh, and you end up having a lot more constraints than just what am I doing on my website? Uh, for example, I worked for a global banking firm and we had to wait to roll out some accessibility updates to some components because in Europe, they were adopting some new legislation and they didn't want to roll out a new dashboard at the same time that these new regulations were rolling out. And to have to think about all those things, that like it adds this extra level of complexity that you just don't anticipate or don't even think about because, oh my God, as a web developer, how many millions of things do we already have to know? And to add like, oh, there's some new legislation around finance coming out in Europe. It, like that's a whole. Yeah. It's kind of like enterprises web development with lawyers <laughs> involved in the process uh, at some point. Um, but I've, I've like seen, you know, like we couldn't use certain versions of jQuery or whatever because it wasn't approved yet, you know, or right. Um, you know, and so even that, some of that stuff, you have to like guarantee it happens or like you have SLAs, so you can have zero downtime in any kind of upgrade. Um, I was trying to think of a weird one I had recently. And I can't even think of it. That's how memorable it was. But I'm sure it was just like, you know, we can't do this because in like, oh, it's that classic thing where it's like if you take any kind of payment, the person who hits publish cannot be the same person who committed code or like it's like the person who deploys it cannot be the same person that writes the code, if you handle money or PPI or anything like that. So it's just, mm -hmm. it's like a weird, it's, it just affects the process. Right. And so now the people chain right. is weirder and, or not as linear, you know, and now the like, and then you have to like talk to whoever Greg's boss to kind of nudge Greg to release that. But Greg's like, is it in the ticket queue? And then, you know, and then, yeah. It's and then maybe Greg goes on vacation for two weeks and, uh, and puppeteer, yep. puppets down puppet and chef are broke for two weeks. Cause <laughs> some guy went to burning man been there. So. <laughs> it's such a weird balance too, between uh, enterprise engineers and contractors. So many times I will say things for months and I'll show demos and I'll do white papers and I'll make Jira tickets but until I bring a contractor in to say the exact same thing that I've been saying for months, like there's not general consensus that it should get done. Uh, and I used to think it was just me. So like even still on my desk, I have like how to articulate design decisions and how to make it clear and all these different books that were, you know, helping me figure out where I was going wrong. But in the end, it's really that they just want to hear it from someone else. No, I mean, I think Chris and I were talking, it's almost even like pay scales to affect that, you know, or um, I remember one company I worked for got an audit from Google, like Google came in, you know, and they're like, we're going to help you. And they're like, make the website faster. And then all of a sudden it was really important to make the website faster. And it was like, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's why you hired us. And, and I was a consultant and, but they, 
Sometimes it just takes a certain consultant to, anyway, it's weird. Yeah. <laughs> well, so it's a lot of these things, they, they just sound all bad. Like it takes a long time to ship anything. There's there's people chain is really weird. The requirements is, are harder. The constraints are thicker. Right? It just seems like, and so I can understand the jealousy of being inside one of those things and looking at some you know nimble little company that pushes thirteen times a day. Or like I don't know what it's like at Discord, but I have never woken up without a little green arrow saying update Discord. And, you know, geez, they must push ten times a day over there. This episode of Shop Talk Show is brought to you in part by Jetpack from Automatic. It's a plugin for your WordPress site. I run it on all my WordPress sites. It has a bunch of features packed into it that are just do great things for your WordPress site. And a lot of them are optional. Like if you want the backup stuff, you can buy that a la carte. If you want the instant search stuff, you can buy that a la carte. I use both of those things because I find backups to be completely non-optional when running a website. Got to have those for safety. I think the instant search feature is amazing. It brings like really powerful cloud-hosted search to your site. So you get better search results, a better search experience, and it's just like all offloaded from your own server having to deal with it. It's a really great feature. Just just look at CSS tricks and search for something to experience what that's like. But if I had to pick my absolute favorite feature, I think this is a very hard call. I think it's the CDN stuff. They call it site accelerator and it works for some of your static WordPress files like CSS and JavaScript, but also images and images are tricky to get right on websites. WordPress already does a lot right because it does the responsive images thing where it creates different sizes of them and sends them. That's built into WordPress core, but then optimizing them, hosting them on a CDN uh, is, is, is like another layer of goodness on top of images that you need to be doing. And Jetpack just automatically does it and serves them in the right format too. Yeah. Like a third thing, really kind of tricky stuff to pull off. And in Jetpack, you just flip a toggle on and it does all that stuff. So like, that's huge to me that I don't have to think that much about my image stuff because Jetpack and WordPress are doing so much for me. So thanks for the support Jetpack and automatic But what's what's the flip side then? Like, is there some people? It, it also means that generally you're, you never get a call at three in the morning, right? And and they pay for it too, right? Are you are the jobs ju- juicier in salary? Why would I? Ooh, you know, that's why a good would question. I work with, with 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 all this crap? You know, this stuff that that I understand why because it's safety and regulations and laws and all these kind of important things. But that's so. I mean, undoubtedly a worse job. So I better get twice the salary, right? Yeah. Um. So there's a couple things that I like more about working for larger companies. Um, the benefits are usually a lot better like really good, like healthcare is like a non-issue. Uh, you don't work after 5 p.m. ever. Like that's just a thing that you don't ever do again. And that kind of is what ended up freeing me up to work in open source somewhat because I was able to, I had the time and the energy to do a little bit of work after work on open source and kind of start thinking about where I wanted my career to go next. And that, and it's, really secure. Like 
yeah, there could be some big org change and everyone gets laid off. But generally, I was watching it take like a year to lay off people who were actively doing harmful things like in code. (laughs) And I realized like, wait, there's some security here. (laughs) I have a little bit of room to be a little bit more insistent about things I care about, like accessibility, like quality and markup and all that kind of stuff. They're not just going to say, okay, you know what? We're sick of your opinions. You're fired. Mm-hmm. There's a whole process that they have to go through. Um, and you can, when you figure that out, you can really use their internal processes to help them get better. And there's a lot less uh, insecurity around like your job, I guess. Yeah. Once you're in, you're in. <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, it's what you make of it. I chose to make good things of it. And I'm I, I'm not at a large company now, actually. Um, I'm at HashiCorp. And a company just recently went public. Um, and this is the smallest company I've ever worked for. Oh, interesting. Tell us about HashiCorp. What's going on there? Are you, did you, are you continuing your accessibility, you know, career? Yeah, it's very cool. So... Uh, they recruited me to work on um, a design system. So I'm an oh. engineer inside of a design org, which is very cool. Like that's, this is probably the coolest job I've ever had. Um, it's very cool because I get to be around designers and people who care about design a lot more. I'm okay at it, but I'm, I'm design minded. Like I understand the concepts uh, I could do it, but I really like writing the engineering part better. Um, uh-huh. And I just feel like I'm able to deliver a lot of value. And that's a really great feeling for me, like being useful. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? that's nice. So does this design system have a name? No, and it's a source of consternation for me. <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> no name. Okay. We're and so trying it's to name it. probably not public then, otherwise it would be named. Um, uh, well, all of HashiCorp's stuff is open source. Wow. So it's open source without a name. So people, for lack of a better name, it's the HashiCorp it's design the, system. Yeah, exactly. HashiCorp design system, which it might stay that. Yeah. Yeah. And you can just watch it grow. Yeah. I mean, uh, it could be a worse name. Sometimes you name things what they are. Correct. Yes, correct. Wow. Okay. Okay. So the thing exists. How do you, I'm interested in this a bit because I, I mean a lot because design systems are of course fascinating, but I'm like, um, who does it serve then? Is it one of those like multiple websites at a minimum and then other, or is it go even deeper? Is it like serve the Android app or whatever? Yeah. So most of the HashiCorp products are really targeted towards like developers, engineers, sysadmins, that kind of stuff. Uh, it's They're trying to do, well, they're successfully doing uh, automation in all these different areas around app development and security and networking and uh, infrastructure, that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. And they're trying to make something that works with any cloud. 
So it doesn't matter if you're using Google or AWS or Azure, that's fine. You can just still use the same product and manage all of those different things, resources, which I think is pretty cool. So that's the pro- that's what HashiCorp is, right? But you so but you're like you need to build like dashboards and yes. stuff. And yeah. if you ask somebody what do you use Ember for, they're going to say dashboards. Like it infamously Ember is the dashboard framework. Really great for how we handle data and how we render things and it's okay to be a little bit slower because you're literally at work at your dashboard. Like we're not trying to sell you something. We're trying to give you information that you need to do your work. So like maybe the first render is a little bit slow, but everything after that's fine. Uh, So we have our internal product platforms are all Ember, but our marketing websites are all next. Okay. Oh, interesting. So it probably didn't hurt that you were Ember Core when you got this job, right? I might have been recruited because I was Ember Core. <laughs> oh, okay. It, that might have helped a little bit. It I don't helps know. The, I think uh... it was more my work in accessibility. And um, we have management said, we want this to be accessible. Uh, so they specifically recruited for that. Accessible and Ember forward. Uh, fascinating. Okay. So, and, but, so the thing, does it serve anything other than websites? Not yet. Uh, what we're doing with design tokens, the team lead came from, uh, I believe, Bumble before this. Okay. And he had a lot of experience with design systems and um, Amazon style dictionary mm-hmm. for design tokens. Yeah. Which, oh my God, I was so excited to learn about this this tool and start using I've this never, tool. I've literally never heard of it. Amazon oh Design Dictionary? Style Dictionary. Style Dictionary, yeah. yeah. It's very cool. It's like a, uh, I don't know, like you, you can just spit out JSON <laughs> or you can spit out like uh, CSS VARs or SAS VARs or iOS crud you know xml files or whatever you need for that that seems like like that's the heart of a design token right the whole point of them was it's like don't make them in css custom properties because that's really just output of it Mm -hmm. it should be some more agnostic language and in this case the agnostic language is whatever the style dictionary thing is Mm -hmm. and you can convert to pretty much any platform for the output yeah that's super cool it's super cool and it's useful because figma or any design tool, really, I haven't really seen them shift to a non-pixel-based design system. Yeah. So designers are shipping these things that are in pixels and four pixels here and six pixels here. And and I'm shipping things in relational units because it's for the web. Mm-hmm. And All I right. need to be able to handle Zoom. And yes, the browsers have gotten better at it, but we still need to use relational units. So being able to pull some stuff from Figma, run it through a tool that has, you know, I've written a conversion function and run it through that tool and have that output be what I need it for the web. Like that's super useful. A lot less me pulling out my calculator and doing math, you know? Yeah, yeah. Cool. So, so that would you're set up nicely for a non-web thing. I, I only ask because I don't know. I'm just curious about like understanding this design system more holistically. Does it does it end up on NPM? 
is it one of those like if a if some somebody's building a new next site for a new marketing page at HashiCorp, can they just go like npm install HashiCorp design system? Now, now they got it and then they use it. Yep. Or are you like a mono repo setup so you don't even need to bother pushing it to npm because it's just next door? We are trying to do a mono repo setup, but you can also like npm install at HashCorp slash nice. design component or design system or whatever. Right. So it's a it's a it's one big old GitHub repo, which that we can provably know because I'm looking at it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's cool. That's great. That's great. And th- and then is it and then how do people really use it? Do they they bring up the storybook and just be looking at it to know what's available or like how do they like consume it in that way? Um so so far we're a really new team. So we're still in the uh trying to get everyone on our own team aligned, which you know that takes a little bit of time when you're a brand new team. Uh but we're finding ourselves aligned philosophically and we've been given the space to kind of work through technical opinions and details. So uh, our team lead calls it our scrappy website um, for demonstrating what, and we'll make it fancy later, but for now it's like, is it functional? And our focus is on what components do we have now? What components are we building next? Like what's our, right now we're doing our roadmap for the year. Uh, and that kind of thing. So that's kind of where our focus is right now. Uh, they've had a few internal efforts and we're just trying to look at what do people need though? Because we really, we have enough experience on the team to, in general, here's what we think you'll need. But we're actually going into the code bases and looking at, well, what do you have now? And where could we actually bring improvements so like mm-hmm. accessibility on a few pages, we've been able to give you 26% more accessible, for example, by fixing a few components. Yeah, because like you built it this way, but why don't you just replace it with the component that we've now shipped? It'll be more consistent with all of everything else we do around here, plus bonus accessibility points. Yeah. Enjoy. It's a very good selling point. Less technical debt for you. If we could talk friction for a minute, is there moments where they're like, yeah, I would use that, but you don't have a color prop and (laughs) I literally Um, are sidebars green over here in Greenland. So the design org at HashiCorp, I'm very impressed with it. They're very strong, very cohesive. um, Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of unity there. Sometimes uh, we do get there are some of that because there's some of that everywhere. Like this is not a unique problem, right? I think those things will shake themselves out over time. So where I've always worked at a place where it's very top down and it's very like you have the CTO coming in saying, we're rolling out a design system and you're going to adopt it. Mm-hmm. And managers are like, okay, we'll put that on our roadmap. And at HashiCorp, it's like, please build this and we're going to be measuring whether or not folks are adopting it. So that's kind of neat. Also kind of weird. I don't know. That's the harder path. I think, I think because what we were talking about it, weren't we in 
shop talk discord, but just like the insurgent path, I think is what it's called. Just the, <laughs> you have to build up this army of users internally or something. So is it open to the point, like, let's say I'm a, one of these developers that's working on one of these next apps or whatever. And, and I just know that like, cause that skill set is very, that is a front end developer skill set. So if I can, if there's a sidebar component that I know needs to have a green background, but that's not one of the props, can I just come over to this repo, add that as a prop possibility and push it? And now the design system is updated for my needs too. Or is that like not cool because that person might not actually be on the design systems team and there's like a whole process for adopting it? I would say any uh, any solid design system has a process for contributing. Uh, and of course, ours does because I'm very open sourcey. So I'm very like, contribute. If you want to see change, make it happen. Mm-hmm. You can do it. Um, PR is welcome. And that's kind of our approach at HashiCorp as well. While the design systems team has final say and it's very design-driven process, mm-hmm. um, Folks can definitely open an issue or open a PR. And I think mm-hmm. we'll see a lot more of that as we get closer to parity with what folks have now. Nice. So how do these, if you have Ember stuff and you have Next stuff, that means you those are really different component syntaxes as, as far as I know. So is it web components or is there some other fancy tool you use to make them usable with both or how does it work? Yeah. So right now the next team is actually just using the design tokens. They prefer mm-hmm. to build their own components and that gives them a little bit more flexibility. Uh, with Ember engineers, they tend to want the pre-built thing already easy, ready to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like make it out of the box. I don't want to have to think about it. Um, and I think I'm observing that very different mindset between different kinds of developers working on different kinds of products, Ember engineers tend to have apps that are a little bit more complex from like what it's doing. It has to talk to you know servers and it has to do all this different. And Ember kind of frees you up to work focus on what's important to you, but it means you give up the decision making for a lot of the mundane details. And if you love that, then you love Ember. If you don't like that, if you want to build everything from scratch yourself, then uh, maybe you don't want Ember so much. Mm. When it's, you know, I wonder too, if it's from a different angle too, it's like, I really want to use Framer Motion or what, you know, like I just, that's (laughs) got to be in there. Oh man, Ember doesn't have that because it's all React only guess we're using react, you know? So I wonder if like there's, you know, it's, it's like sort of like a, all the influences that can choose your tool set. So, you know, Yehuda Katz has a saying, uh, all good ideas end up in Ember. <laughs> and sometimes. It sounds very uh, Yehuda. If I, if I can get the same. Doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the idea is that sometimes we won't have an equivalent solution right away, or we'll say there's a little bit different way to do it. Uh, one of the other core team members, Ed Faulkner, created Ember Auto Import, so you could just use a JavaScript library. You didn't need an Ember version of it anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But Ibra thinks about some things differently and really kind of has some different ways to approach things. And and even as we uh, get this closer parity to the rest of, you know, to the other frameworks, and we kind of want to make it easier for folks to use Ember or to be able to have the option Mm -hmm. and not have it be you have to go learn a totally new thing and think in a totally different way. Um. There's still a little bit of that. I love, I do, I appreciate Yehuda for being one of those like code genius, you know, kind of like half crazy guy, but who didn't like go crazy and peace out and like delete their repos and, or like drive a motorcycle across Russia or something, you know, not that that's weird or anything, but like, I feel like the code geniuses tend to go crazy in our industry. I think they burn out and it, you know, I, almost wonder if it's because of the constant hype cycle is just exhausting. Yeah. I really appreciate like shiny new things, but I'm kind of more of the kind of person who wants to find the thing that already exists and make it better, which is probably why Ember was a good fit for me. And I really felt like it um, aligned with my previous experience. So I did PHP, like custom PHP apps and WordPress development before I did Ember and a lot of the stuff felt the same or felt similar enough to me that the transition for me was pretty easy. That's cool. This episode of Shop Talk Show is brought to you in part by CodePen, and I'm here to tell you to go pro on CodePen. CodePen Pro is is awesome now, and it's only going to get way, way more awesome. I happen to know as I, you know, work on and get to decide those features. I'm so excited about the future of CodePen Pro, but of course, as we do that, eventually, over time, CodePen Pro is going to get more expensive, so you might as well get on one of those grandfathered plans. That's what I'm saying, you know. But uh, of course, today you get a bunch of features as well. You can uh, a big one is privacy and that you can make your pens and collections and projects private on CodePen, meaning that nobody can see it unless you very explicitly share the URL with them. That's a big one. Let's say you need an image in a pen. You drag and drop an image. We'll host the image for you and we'll optimize it and we can resize it for you if you want. All these great, serve it in the right formats and all that stuff. Things that can happen just with URL parameters for your images uh, and other assets that you upload to CodePen. We'll handle all of that for you. It's a pro feature. And there's things like collab mode, working in real time with other people on it, and a bunch of more features. Upgrade to pro at codepen.io slash features slash pro. I got a, one design question for both of you that I want to, like... F- I want. I, I can't talk about it intelligently in Emberland, but React has this concept of spreading props. Meaning, if you're designing a component, you have the option of, you know, kind of like at the root of the component, you just do like dot 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 props, and it just anything that woulda came in as a prop on the when you call that component, it's just as like bleh, and it barfs them out on the thing. And the, and the reason that you do that is. Because then it's like, I don't know, when I call this component, I could put ARIA label on it and it will just work. It'll just barf the ARIA label out onto the parent component. And I don't I don't have to make a prop specifically called ARIA label and then pass it in and then put ARIA label. It'll just take whatever. And you kind of do that for the 
for overriding possibilities too, because then if you pass a style prop in it, well, then it will apply the inline styles on top of it. And then I don't, if somebody really, really wants a green sidebar, they just put style background color green on it and it will spread the prop and blast that background color green on it. So it's this trade-off between, you know, an alternative is to not spread your props, meaning that if you try to do that, it won't, there's, it won't end up on the DOM element in the end. So too bad. It's like a way of exerting some control over the design system. Like, oh, we don't allow that round here. And it feels like a, like a philosophical choice of a design system. Do you have any strong feelings either way about, about like, feel free to override this in any way or please don't override this in any way? Dave, you go first. I want to hear what you think. Yeah, that's tough. Uh, like... Especially if you mix in like prop types or some kind of validation too. I feel like, uh, maybe it's different in React land, but like in, in, uh, view land, it's just kind of like you, uh, you have to say like what props this have and give them types and stuff like that. Or your linters, like you have to give it a type if you're going to pass it in, you know, and I could see situations where like just chuck all props always is like the, the, prop typer checker would just be pissed, you know, all the time. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I, there's, yeah, it's that, it's that constant thing. It's like how much is too much. Um, you know, I, I, yeah, there's, I, I like this. Um, there's a little model from web components where, because it's usually just a class, like, my dialogue or something, you know, class, my dialogue extends HTML element. You can actually go like class, no, my dialogue <laughs> extends my dialogue, you know? <laughs> so it's like, you can like kind of override and then inject your own CSS if you like want to get like real kind of rowdy, but that then that creates another component in the system. And that's now it's noisy or cloudy. Um, Mm-hmm. But, you know, I don't know. I also don't hate just passing a color. <laughs> so I, I guess it would be so situational for me. But then that's where it causes problems because my definition of the right situation is not everyone's definition. So Yeah. So I'll say in Ember, we have what we call splattributes, dot, 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 attributes. Mm-hmm. And if you add this to your component, when it's invoked, the person using the component can add extra ones and it's fine and they'll render. It's fine. Um, but for security reasons, Ember will throw an error if you try to add inline styles. So you can oh, add really? a class name. You can add an extra class name and we'll append the class name to the class. But we don't want you doing inline styles. I mean, you can turn it off if you really want to, but... It's not idiomatic. Like you're definitely going against the well-lit path and we'll try to stop you multiple times because it's a bad idea. <laughs> wow. That's good. That's probably too an enterprise thing. Like think about it. You don't want inline cells in your banking. That's a security issue, right? I'm not sure what the security issue is. I know that it's, I know that it's in bad taste because it's like if people go too crazy with that, then it's like you're. You've gone rogue. You can do uh, cross-site scripting. Really? All inline styles open up XSS. So um, before I was a web developer, I was an intelligence analyst for the U.S. Navy, um, which is just fancy word for spy. 
Um, but it really made you think about, it made me think about web security first. That's probably the first thing I thought about when I was working on websites. Like, if I'm a bad guy, how do I hack this? Or if I'm a person with malicious intent, how do I hack but this? But would it be a malicious intent that works for you <laughs> in this case? Because you know, I, I wouldn't suggest taking user input and putting it as a style attribute. I mean, that would be... I think one of the things I've seen about enterprise engineering is that if it builds, it works is kind of the mentality. And it kind of comes around to this idea that we're not really teaching web fundamentals in a good, strong way across all engineering. So if you go to school for a computer science degree, you're probably not learning the stuff you need to build an accessible, secure web application. So that's probably where the trade-off is. That's interesting. If it build it builds, it works. That's like a thousand percent of web development. <laughs> it built, it works. It's fine. It's good. Everyone can use it, of course. So that is a pretty good segue. I don't know if it was intentional or not, but that kind of um, that idea of oh, now I lost it. I'm sorry, but there's one thing that we really want to talk about, which is this the idea of accessibility prioritization as as far as like when you learn web development, why isn't it there so much? And and why are there so many, th these are kind of your words when we've talked about this on a previous show that you wrote in about, about how many, there's so many freaking geniuses out there that know a hundred billion things about web development. They just, they know everything. They're full stack. They know how to write, they know how to, you know, write a database migration and they know how to build a design system and, you know, blah, 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 blah. They just know there's just 500 things about web and they're just in their own minds, they're geniuses and they probably actually are geniuses because a lot of this stuff is actually pretty complicated and yet have this tremendous blind spot for accessibility. Like, how did that even come to be? How yeah. the hell did that happen? <laughs> Uh, because we don't use machines that are not our development machines. As much as we try, as much as we drill into our heads, we are not the users. Uh, still, we have to make it build and deploy. Right? Mm -hmm. And we have to figure out all these hard things. Like, how do I get, I need to write an adapter that serializes the data coming from a database and like going into my data model and all of that used to work together. And of course, like five different people built like six different APIs and, you know, all of that kind of complexity on top of deadlines, on top of like, <laughs> does it render in the browser though? And yeah. then, you know, the browsers are changing every hot minute and it worked yesterday in Chrome and today it doesn't. And what happened overnight, we got an update that broke some stuff. And sometimes that's a bug and sometimes it's on purpose. And in juggling all of that, we forgot to go use a different machine. We forgot to think about people who need assistive technology. Or maybe we just worse forgot that they existed. And uh, I think we're having kind of this really great moment for accessibility in the web right now where I'm seeing it in so many more places. And as someone who's felt like, insurmountable. It will never change. I'm just going to go cry in the corner uh, because I just can't seem to affect change. How do I do this? But that you're seeing a lot more folks like 
bring it up in their CSS course. Well, that's pretty cool. Right. Is, doesn't that feel like that's the that's the place for it, too, to some degree? That, like, you should learn those things right right alongside everything else you learn in the very, very early days of what? So by the time somebody, you're looking at a tutorial that has div on click on it, you're like, wait, wait, what is that? But that doesn't seem normal to you. That seems like a mistake to you the first time you see it. Yeah. You know, I would say even like five years ago, I was having developers tell me, oh, just use a div. You're so old. Why do you want HTML? And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> okay. Uh, I just... Yes, I might be old, but also <laughs> like, no, there's a reason. That's even That's even a different category of like active distaste for it. Not only yeah. like, oh, I didn't know that. It's like when you learn how to like sort an array a different way, There's there, the reaction to that tends to be like, oh, how interesting. I didn't know that API was around. Applaud, clap. And then if somebody says like, you know, what's that section element? That should be a div. Instead of curiosity, it's like, meh, mm -hmm. meh. Mm -hmm. What the flip? <laughs> well, you know why? Because you can use clever JavaScript to say in these situations, make it this, make the component kind of look in this shape. And if everything's a div, it's a lot easier. There's a lot fewer conditionals, right? Yeah. And well, and, and it's a lot of thinking, right? Like you have to think about like, oh, there is there a better option for this element? You know, and not saying like JavaScript developers don't think I'm not making that generalization although i could but um <laughs> but like it's i mean it, for me it it creates a lot of choice it's like you know i can just go div item 1 div item 2 div item 3 looks good works you know but guess what ol and li's are you know are like maybe a better choice you know and so then and unless you like know it's like not immediately clear the benefit unless you like kind of dig in and you peel back that layer. Like why does HTML even exist? Oh, it's a structured markup language. Okay. So why, you know, like what are these structures, you know? And then the fact that the accessibility OM is like the, it's completely hidden from you unless you're yeah. open the yeah. right panel and dev tools by accident. Mm -hmm. So Yeah. <laughs> And that didn't even used to be there, right? You kind of had to know, like, I've had to teach really brilliant JavaScript engineers, hey, your code needs to be able to talk to another machine's code. Yeah. Like a screen reader. And that uh, kind of blew people's minds at first. But uh, some of the stuff we're seeing is... Um, so. The first approach I had towards like teaching engineers about accessibility was kind of empathy, like, hey, care about people. Also, hey, don't get sued. Also, hey, you're missing out on like more revenue. But I would say in the last few years, my approach has really evolved to be more like, how can I give you better tools? So you're aware that of this thing. Uh, I worked a lot on uh, Ember Template Lint which is uh, we'll go through your, and we wrote really specific rules based on accessibility criteria that will tell you if you do something wrong in your template and what you should do instead. Oh, that's cool. Is it like f form 
label input pairs and stuff like that. Those kind of you're classics. missing a label, or you yeah. put a interactive element interaction on a non-interactive element. Um, mm-hmm. You have nested interactive elements. Uh, nice. The, yeah, the node AST. You wrote your own little axe or whatever for Ember. Kind of, yeah, because we do have. Uh, we use XCore as like a, the testing, so the dynamic part gets tested. But to have that feedback before you push, to have that feedback before you run your tests in line while you're writing your code, that's really valuable. And we could also write fixers. So you can run uh, yarn lint colon HBS dash dash fix. And if it's fixable, it will fix it for you. <laughs> Uh, and that was pretty neat to do for the community. And yeah, the fixer is pretty amazing. My yeah, gosh. it's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's going the extra mile there. Just <laughs> not just complaining. You're actually fixing. Because that, that's the thing is like, like I always go to like H or, or button H2, like a, a button with an H2 inside of it does not work. It's actually it's wrong HTML. But a button inside an H2, you're good to go, which is, you're just like, this is so weird. Why? It, no one taught me that. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had yeah. to find that out 16 years into my career, you know? So, uh, like Linter's kind of stepping in there to be like, Oh, whoa, 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 buddy. <laughs> like you biffed it. That's pretty helpful and cool. So it was kind of gaining the confidence to, it's kind of, my career's kind of evolved over the years, right? So I grew up in a religious cult and my choices were housewife or missionary. Uh, and if you that's your calling, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if that's your calling, great for you, but it wasn't mine. Uh, so um, I find that in, you know, working for the web and showing up and also like doing things that, men have typically said women shouldn't do these things. Like women shouldn't be in the military. Women shouldn't be software engineers. Um, there's part of me that's like, watch me. Uh, <laughs> that's good. I'm a little bit spicy that way. Right. Um, but so there's uh, gaining the confidence to show up in the first place and then gaining the knowledge to say, Oh no, that's incorrect. And then evolving into a place where I'm saying, this is not correct. Here's why. Here's what I'm recommending instead. Also, here's a tool that will help you do it. And that kind of evolution along the way is how I feel like I get to contribute to make the web a better place. And that's pretty cool. Like that's how my thinking about accessibility has evolved. It's I'm yes, I get to be a better human because of it. Great. But like, if we could just turn this into only a technical issue, we're producing better code. We're giving you more tools so you can still be a brilliant engineer and think about hard stuff, but we're going to support you better. And I think that's kind of where I'm at with accessibility. I want the tools to support us better, to make it easier for us to do the right thing. I like it. Yeah, to that tooling stuff is so is so huge. I mean, I, I love the idea of catching it before it's even like transformed the first time. You know, it's right there in the editor. You know, um, 
Axe uses this term like shift left or whatever, which I I like now that I learned what it is, although I felt left off for a while. I feel like I heard shift left a lot in my career before I had any idea what it meant. But it meant like rather than I mean, all the way to the right would be like catch accessibility problems when it's caused a problem for a real user and they write you an email. That's like the end of the process. That would suck. So let's move it a little sooner. Let's catch it because we're testing production with some tool. Well, that's not all the way to the right, but it's still pretty far to the right, you know, and it'll shift it a little bit left. Well, that's, you know, testing it in the GitHub repo or something in continuous integration. Shift it a little bit left. It's like, let's test it on our local machine before it's committed, but after it's built, shift left even more. And you're in Melanie Town where you're checking your accessibility in templates. You know, that's about as left as it can possibly be. The second the code has left your fingertips, it's being checked for for code. I think that's that's pretty cool. Although I do think they should be tested on, in all of those places because who knows what happens in the in the transforms. Having accessibility testing in CI is pretty cool. You know, having it run again after it's been deployed, also cool. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and then we can take it one step forward, which is really where I'm going kind of next with how I think about accessibility, like what's the future for me? And that's continuous accessibility. So we have continuous deployment, we have continuous integration. How can we have continuous accessibility? Is this even a concept we could, how do we do this if we want to do this? Uh, So in the linting tool, we can have, and and I think we borrowed, actually borrowed this idea from ESLint. I don't even think this is a new idea. Um, We can have something called a to-do. And what this allows us to do is roll out a new linting rule and existing code it gets a to-do to fix the issue, but all new code is immediately subjected to that new linting constraint. And this allows you to roll it out, new linting rules, whenever you want to, to huge code bases. And you're really putting power in the hands of the developer to incrementally improve their code. So I'm pretty excited about this idea. I'm even trying to write a book about it. Cool. We'll see how nice. that goes. Yeah, yeah. Um, about the metrics around how do you measure this? How do we turn uh, accessibility engineering into a practice uh, that can be quantified and not just uh, qualitatively measured? And what does that improvement look like over time? And uh, I got to work with some really brilliant engineers at LinkedIn doing specifically work on um, continuous accessibility in Ember. And it just got me thinking about things in a whole extra new way. And it's been really just, I don't know, I'm excited to see where it goes next. You know, It's cool to see somebody that's been at it for so long excited about the, you know, the changes and new things and new possibilities of all instead of just being like, I'm going to burn it all down, yeah. you know, you, you <laughs> haven't entered your uh, bitter uh, veteran stage yet. So. <laughs> I don't know, man, this June will be 25 years since I first started Ooh. writing code for the web. Okay. Well, I'm going to have to take myself on a vacation or something. I don't know if we're not still having a pandemic. Maybe I will celebrate, get a milkshake. That's, that's what I'm going to do. So. <laughs> 
All right. Well, that's probably a great place to, to peel off here. Uh, thank you so much, Melanie, for coming on the show. Long overdue. But uh, for people who aren't following you and giving you money, how can they do that? Oh, uh, they don't need to give me money. They can support Ember and open source if they want to. Uh, I've got some open source projects on GitHub that are always open for sponsors. And I'm Mel Sumner on GitHub. And you can really find me, like, I don't know. I think the first time I met Chris, he uh, said, oh, you're Melanie from Twi- from the Twitter. Nice. <laughs> oh, that could have been worse. <laughs> no, it's great. Um, so Twitter or GitHub. Yeah. Or, of course, the Shop Top Discord. Oh, yeah. Discord. Awesome. Well, thanks again, and uh, it was exciting to kind of, I don't know, I, I like this accessibility automation stuff, and I like to see where you're going with it. So thanks for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. And uh, thank you, dear listener, for downloading this in your podcast, your choice, be sure to start her favorite up. That's how people find out about the show. Uh, and you guys stay tuned for episode 500. It's just around the corner, baby. And then, uh, yeah, uh, follow us uh uh, at Shop Talk Show for 16 tweets a month. We are <laughs> videos over at the Real CSS Tricks YouTube channel. And of course, hang out in the Discord, patreon.com slash Shop Talk Show. Uh, we'd love to have you. And Chris, do you have anything else you'd like to say? Shop Talk Show.com. <laughs>